Hello there, history friend. Zach Twomley here. You may know me from When Diplomacy Fails podcast, and I am in fact the Agora podcast of the month of September, which is pretty cool. But what you may not know is that I have something very special planned in this month of September. How special? Well, think of a historical fiction series set during the Thirty Years' War, or the early to mid-17th century, for those of us not as obsessed with the Thirty Years' War as myself. On the 15th of September, I'm releasing the first of what I am intend to be a very long historical fiction series. The series will be called Matchlock, a Thirty Years' War Story, and the first installment will be called Matchlock and the Embassy. What can you expect from this series? Well, the usual blend of war and diplomacy that you would get from When Diplomacy Fails podcast, because Matthew Locke, or Matchlock as he becomes in the first book, spoiler alert, happens to be an absolute pro with the Matchlock musket, but he also happens to be well-educated and quite a fan of talking his way out of situations as well. So yes, I managed to bring diplomacy into my own fiction series, but I'm really, really excited about it, guys. I haven't been this excited about anything I've done since I started When Diplomacy Fails nearly 10 years ago. I promised myself for a long time that I would release a novel before I was 30, and I managed to squeeze in there just by about a month. So on the 15th of September, if you would like to check out Matchlock and the Embassy and tell all your friends about it too, that would be fantastic. You may hear me guesting on different shows, and I hope you don't mind me guesting on this one. That's because I'm doing my best to spread the word about it, because I am so, so excited. And I hope you'll join me in this journey as well. All right, now I hope you enjoy the actual podcast that you signed up for. Take care, and I'm sure that I'll be seeing you soon. Hello, and welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 104, Pope Sergius II. Ooh, Sergius. Sergius. And I have moved my cell phone away from my Yeti because I definitely had it directly next to my Yeti the whole time yesterday and forgot. Again? <laughs> That's where it sits. Right, we talked about that in the, the, the recording before yesterday. And you still... Well, it's moved. Mine is also over because it doesn't live next to my microphone. It's its home. Well, it needs to move. Migrate that shit. Alright, Sergius was born into the Roman nobility of, quote, of the Fourth Ward around the year 790, and his father's name was Sergius. But his name was not Sergius. Instead, his name was Pietro the Porca, or according to Bartolomeo Platina, he was nicknamed Boca de Porca, which means hog's mouth, which brings up a whole other set. Of questions. Hog's mouth. It's not a very flattering What's nickname. a day Beppo then? Book a day Beppo is a restaurant. It is a restaurant. What's a Beppo? What is a Beppo? Oh, hang on. Book his mouth. I, I should know this, but it's like sitting in the. Now it just says Beppo. <laughs> okay, so Buka means hole or pit. Yeah. Which I guess could be your mouth. Well, this uh, mouth is Boca. Boca, okay. This is Buca de Beppo. What does it mean? It means Joe's Basement. <laughs> Beppo is a, like a nickname for Giuseppe, yeah. which is Joe. 
Joe. Joe's basement. There you go. Joe's hole. Well, what's worth? Would you rather be known as Joe's hole or hog's mouth? They're equally bad in this context. They are. And we're going to come back to this whole name thing a little later. But for now, we also need to acknowledge that he had a brother called Benedict. And according to historian and author of papal genealogy, George L. Williams, they are of the same noble family that will produce future popes Adrian II and Stephen IV. So this means that they could be an offshoot of the Colonna family. Now, according to the Liber Pontificalis, Sergius and Benedict's father died when they were quite young, and the boys were raised by, quote, an illustrious mother who began with great endeavor to educate them on chaste provender so that no one could hear from him or see in him anything lewd or wanton. It goes on to say, he had no little contempt for childish amusements, and so in the eyes of all he was accomplished in godly deeds. He began to shine with the character of his noble ancestors, strengthened and schooled by his mother's pure devices. So every day his mother rejoiced and readily gave thanks to Almighty God, who granted her such offspring along with help from on high. These are beautiful, pure boys getting a beautiful, pure education. And they're so pure. God's gift to their mother. Ugh. Who, by the way does not get a name. No name. She's just beautiful and illustrious or noble. We get to know that his father's name was Sergius, but he's dead and the mother that raised them is just noble and pure, of course. Unfortunately for them, their mother died when Sergius was 12, but the boys were then taken in by the church on instruction by Pope Leo III to be educated in the Scola Cantorum, which is that singing school. Okay. So they don't have beery throats or whatever. No, you can't have a Frankish beery throat. That would just be an absolute monstrosity to the pure font of the Roman singing. Sergius excelled in the scola and went on to be an acolyte and then a priest and then was made the cardinal priest of the Church of Saints Martin and Sylvester by Pope Pascal. Also, the Liber Pontificalis entry is once again so flowery that it has to go on a tangent to compliment St. Martin and St. Sylvester just in the process of saying that he went to that church, so that's a whole thing that I'm just not going to do. He was then promoted to be an archpriest by Pope Gregory IV. So he'd had quite a long church career so far, and then when Pope Gregory died, the Roman nobility gathered together for a little pre-election discussion. The thing that they're, you know, not supposed to do. Illegal. So illegal. And they decided at this pre-election discussion that Sergius would be their choice to succeed Gregory. This was not an actual election, but they would decide their candidate of choice first so that when the election happened, they could all just acclaim him with one powerful voice and kind of overwhelm any other choice. However, it turned out that the populace was on to this aristocratic scheming. And they didn't want to continually elect a pope of the nobility's choosing. And they had found someone else to represent them, a non-aristocratic deacon called John. And so before an official election could be held, the people, or as the Liber Pontificalis calls them, the mob, seized the Lateran Basilica and acclaimed this non-aristocratic deacon called John as pope. Anti-pope. Ooh, another... We have another antipope. 
But this was fairly short-lived, and as a result, we're going to keep the details and quotations for Antipope John's episode on Patreon. But through some circumstances that are somewhat unclear in all of the sources, the electors of John and John himself were forced out of the Lateran in favor of Sergius, who then gets duly elected and consecrated in a very rushed ceremony. Now, some of the nobility wanted to see Antipope John put to death for his brief anti-papacy, but Sergius refused to allow this to happen. He's being very magnanimous. He figured instead imprisonment in a monastery for life would be better, so maybe not so magnanimous. Now, this is where we need to talk about his name. If we're to believe the secondary sources, up until this point, Sergius's name had been Pietro. Hogsmouth, Pietro, which is, of course, Peter. And when he is consecrated as Pope, he refuses to become Peter II, seeing this as an affront to St. Peter, the first Pope, who he argued he wasn't worthy of sharing the name with. And so he takes a pontifical name, Sergius, likely because Sergius had been the name of his father. And following the setting of this precedent, no pope has ever taken the name Peter, despite many people with that name being elected to the pontificate. We'll never have a Peter too. Can't. Can't do it. Can't do it. However, all of this being said, verifying this precedent back to Sergius is extremely difficult. This is what we think happened, but it's not actually mentioned in the Liber Pontificalis, and he's not generally cited as one of the popes who officially changed their names. So it is hard to say. If this happened, the official record of it is somewhat lost. And there are several upcoming popes in this era that will change their name from Peter. So we know that it does, in fact, become a precedent somewhere around this time. There's going to be a Pope John who was born as Peter, and there's going to be another Pope Sergius who was born as Peter. So we can't absolutely verify for certain that this Sergius is really the first, but this is what we think. He may have been Peter. Now, you might have noticed that in the chaos of an antipope, I mentioned that Sergius was rushed to be consecrated, which meant that the people and the pope did not wait for confirmation from the Franks, as that troublesome Constitutio Romanum had dictated. Again, we're not seeing this follow through. And this went over very poorly with the emperor, who, remember, is now Lothair because Louis the Pious has died. And we also know about Lothair, as of last week, uh, he's always been a hothead. Yes. Despite the fractured slash ended state of the empire, he still absolutely expected that the Constitutio was going to be upheld and definitely expected to ratify papal elections before consecrations. So he's mad. So Lothair sends his son, Louis II, who's king of Italy now that Lothair is emperor, to Rome at the head of an army with the intention of reminding Rome of their obligations. Louis was also accompanied by Archbishop Drogo of Metz, who is Lothair's main advisor. Now, before we get to that meeting, we have to look at what the Liber Pontificalis says happened along the way. 
So according to this very dramatic account, as the soldiers under King Louis made their way to Rome, they passed through Bologna, committing heinous slaughter and butchery. Until a miracle occurred. Miracles. So calm was the weather that no one could see a cloud or any sign of rain anywhere in the sky. But suddenly, enormously thick black clouds appeared, and while they were surrounded by storms, tempests, and flashes, some of Drogo's chief counselors were smitten and struck down by a bolt of lightning. Great was the terror that seized all the Franks when they saw this awesome sight. Ooh, a storm. Ooh. A miracle storm where God smites the slaughtering and butchering men. Now this doesn't cause them to turn back, but it at least made them hastily leave Bologna for Rome, rather than hanging around to just commit wholesale murder like they've been doing. The Pope meets Louis and his forces as they approach the city, with standard bearers and fanfare, hoping to appease them enough to avoid violence. And it worked, and King Louis accompanied the Pope to St. Peter's. But here again, we're going to see a little bit of supernatural intervention. When the king arrived, climbing all the steps leading to St. Peter's Holy Church, he approached the pontiff where he was waiting in the atrium at the top of the steps close to the church doors with the whole clergy and the Roman people. They embraced each other. King Louis held the pontiff's right hand, and they entered inside the atrium and came to the silver doors. It was in the atrium that one of the troops, in the sight of all the Franks, was seized by a demon and much troubled. Then the bountiful prelate had all of St. Peter's doors shut and ordered them to be bolted. On the admonishment of the Holy Ghost, he thus addressed the king. If you have come here with pure purpose and sincere intent and for the safety of the state and the whole city and of this church, enter these doors at my bidding. But if you have not, these doors will be opened up to you neither by me nor by my license. The king immediately replied, telling him that he had come with no evil purpose or any perverseness, or bad intention. Hey, one of your guys is having a demonic fit back there. If this isn't legit, uh, we're closing all these doors to you. Get out. It's handy. It's handy. It's like a little alarm bell. <laughs> yeah. So the negotiation between Louis, Drogo, and the Pope went over relatively well. The Pope conceded to abide by the Constitutio that no Pope should be consecrated without imperial confirmation, and Louis vowed to protect Rome rather than attack it. And to cement this agreement, the Pope publicly crowned Louis as King of Italy slash King of the Lombards in St. Peter's on June 15th, 844, following the ongoing tradition. All of the archbishops, bishops, and abbots, and all of the Franks who had come with him again gathered in the Prince of the Apostles of Basilica, along with all the noble and distinguished Romans. Then the bountiful pontiff with his own hands anointed the emperor's son Louis with holy oil, crowning him with a royal and precious crown, and made him king of the Lombards. He gave him a royal sword and bade him to gird it on himself. Again, the pope is making the statement, I crown you guys. Even when you come here to threaten me, I crown you guys. 
And it was at this point, after crowning the king of Italy, that Archbishop Drogo, Lothair's ambassador and advisor, suggested that the Pope make a public vow of fealty to the emperor and King Louis for all the civil authorities in Rome to follow suit. And this was more than the Pope was willing to concede. If we consider the Liber Pontificalis account, it suggests that the Pope rejected the oath of fealty because it included Louis as the king of Italy rather than just fealty to Lothair the emperor. But more likely, this is Sergius resisting the oath to proclaim that the Pope was not subject to the emperor because the Pope was subject to no one. He's refusing to do this for papal primacy. Yeah. Very important. The Pope instead agreed to an oath of allegiance and loyalty, so we can see how language here is very, very important when they're playing with these fine lines. And in order to then ensure that Drogo would present all of what happened to the Emperor favorably, the Pope appointed him to be the papal legate to the Franks in order to increase his esteem and honor. So I'm giving you this wonderful extra benefit, extra title, extra prestige, so when you go back and deliver this, you're representing me as much as you're representing the emperor. Clearly, this whole threat resolves itself without too much bother. Now, unfortunately, Pope Sergius was afflicted with gout. No. Yeah, yeah. We've seen several of our other popes suffer through, often for not very long at all. And in his case, again, this gout is severe and crippling and prevented him from being able to administrate at the capacity that he would need to in order to be Pope. As the Liber Pontificalis puts it, now as this pontiff's limbs were weak from a gouty humor, he had lost the power to walk on his feet and had almost lost the use of his hands. But he was rancorous, uncontrolled in speech, and given to wrangling, unstable indeed in words, treating everything lightly. So Sergius is a grumpy, gouty man. Yeah, well, I mean, gout will make you grumps. I mean, honestly, if I didn't have the use of my hands and feet and everything hurt, I would probably be super grumps too. The grumpiest. As a result of this, he leaned very, very, very heavily on his chief advisor, who happened to be his brother, Benedict. And Benedict, who was now the Bishop of Albano, was an absolutely hated figure, and he takes almost all of the blame for everything that could go wrong in Sergius's papacy, as he's believed to have been the one who was in actual control. The author of the Liber Pontificalis really, really hates this guy. Quote, then there was that the pontiff's brother, one Benedict by name, very stupid and dull, who because of the pontiff's infirmity had undeservedly usurped the care of church and state. He was a bore and given to unrefined pursuits, and so he began to expend all the care of the church and the needs of the state on the construction of walls and various buildings, so much so that he failed neither day nor night to cause incessant trouble and vexation. This man even went to the Lord Emperor with large quantities of gifts and sought from him the primacy and lordship at Rome and bragged that it was granted him. After his return, he broke out into the great obstinacy and madness, overstepping everyone to get the monarchy at Rome. 
Thenceforth, he would let no one pay or be paid, be harmed or be helped, except on his say-so. And as he was of uncouth morals, lecherous, and always chasing strumpets, he was not afraid to usurp the bishopric of Albano so he could fight for the devil more recklessly. Remember when these boys were, like, raised up so pure by their pure and noble mother? Yeah. Apparently, Benedict doesn't count. (laughs) He's apparently just the worst, so. You know, it happens. It happens, and if, if Sergius is the older brother and Benedict is the younger brother, he's still quite young when his mother dies, I suppose. Which means he definitely learned all of his lechery while being raised by the church, so something to keep in mind. This account seems to suggest that Benedict was also able to take over the majority of the secular administration of Rome and bled dry all of the resources available to him, including the monasteries. But further records of this don't actually exist, so we don't know how true it is. But we do have this only in the Liber Pontificalis, which says, So the result was in that three years there remained no monastery, whether in Rome or outside, which did not lose its property. Indeed, there was hardly a man inside or outside Rome whom he did not despoil by chance or by design. And with imperial permits and instructions, he thoroughly strove to extort all this, or actually did, from both monasteries and people. From of old, it was unheard of that anyone for such a length of time could merely by his own machinations and cunning lay waste and ransack this world-famous city and all the cities subject to it, their fortresses, coastlines, and borders. So he's just taking everything. And we're going to come back to some of this in a minute. But whatever the actual relationship between the two brothers and whoever was pulling the strings, Sergius's papacy was marked most notably with the two brothers engaging on a massive building program in the city, which is what we see commented in on the never not being an obstinate problem. But out of this, the Marcian and Jovian aqueducts were restored, churches were rebuilt like the San Martino ai Monti, and the Basilica of Saints Romanus, and the Lateran Basilica was even expanded on a fairly grand scale. And by the way, the Liber Pontificalis suggests in its hatred of Benedict that the Pope's brother destroyed some of these basilicas just so he could rebuild them. Oh, rude. Also seems very unlikely, but they really hate this man. As part of their efforts, they also moved many bodies of saints into beautified chapels and altars, including the bones of St. Martin brought back from Cherson, where he had died in exile. But what's more interesting about this building program has less to do with the project themselves and more to do with how Sergius and Benedict funded all of their building projects. Okay. They had a plan. And their plan, you see, was to sell offices of the church to the highest bidder. Oh, wow. Okay, um, choices? Simony, just straight up simony, the most simony ever, just an absolutely massive, massive deal, one of the biggest scandals you can do in the church, let's just sell all of these offices. But of course, again, many sources lay the entire blame on this onto the Pope's brother rather than the Pope. But I quote from the Liber Pontificalis. There flourished in this pontiff's and brother's time, that is, for the three years, the wicked heresy of simony, 
So much did it flourish that bishoprics were sold in public. He who paid the most got the bishopric. To such avarice were they, they brought that a bishopric was sold for 2,000 mancuses, and more still if buyers could find the funds. No incumbency in the church was granted by them, except at a price. When this and the other things mentioned were raging in the church and resounding far and wide among the people, there was none of the Orthodox bishops, nor any of the churchmen, who would show zeal for God and put themselves forward or treat with the emperor or the king to snuff out such evil, or give themselves over voluntarily to death, as it had been better to die happily than live unhappily. So when the Lord saw the church, redeemed by his blood, undergoing shipwreck, and there was no Christian competent to correct such criminality, or recall the authors and abettors of such evil to repentance, God decided that his church should not endure such a reproach. God sent pagans to avenge what the Christians had failed to amend. So this last line, God decided that his church should not endure such a reproach. God sent pagans to avenge what Christians had failed to amend. That is a powerful line. But what yeah. does it mean? <laughs> Do you have any guesses what that might mean? Did a bunch of pagan people buy the church? Well, a bunch of pagan people show up. Okay. It means Muslims. Ah. Oh. Okay. On August 23rd, 846, the Saracen attack that Rome had been fearing for decades happens. They arrived at Portus and Ostia, which were both swiftly captured and looted with almost no resistance, and then they marched on Rome. Now, there seems to be some confusion over which actual Muslims conducted this attack in the sources. The Liber Pontificalis only calls them the pagans, but if we consult other sources like the Chronicles of Monte Cassino or the Annals of Fulda and St. Burton and Santon, there are three possibilities identified by the words that they use. So either they were the Moors from Umayyad Spain and sort of that Al-Andalus region, or Saracens from Africa who had invaded Corsica, or the Saracens who had conquered Sardinia and Sicily under Muhammad Abul Abbas, the ones we talked about last week. Considering that whole thing with Sicily, it might be reasonable to conclude that it is the latter, and Muhammad Abul Abbas does seem to get credit for this attack. But wherever they were from, they are an imposing force, described in the Liber Pontificalis as 11,000 men, 500 horses, and 73 ships. Although historian Tommy P. Lanquila estimates about half that in reality, because sources always exaggerate, this is still an alarming force just suddenly showing up, taking Portis, taking Ostia, and marching on Rome. Surprise, I'm here attacking. Yes, and it's very scary. They, they have feared this for so long, and it is actually happening. By August 26th, the citizens of Rome had all retreated within the Aurelian walls protecting the city, and the Muslim raiders reached their targets. But they had not come to capture Rome. They came for two massive prizes outside of those protected walls. St. Peter's and St. Paul's. St. Paul's outside the walls. And St. Peter's is also outside those walls. 
They stormed the major basilicas, ransacked the interiors, plundered amounts of treasure to the sums of three tons of gold and thirty tons of silver, and desecrated the tombs of St. Peter and St. Paul. Oh, that's... no. Yeah, this is big. This, there's even some speculation that at this point, this is when the bodies of the saints were destroyed. And no one knows for certain whether they were or they weren't. There are sources that so suggest... didn't our Pope, re- a recent Pope, was it the last Pope or the Pope before, definitely did like a thing where he brought all of the saints inside the walls? Yes. The one that we, the one that dumped body parts in places that body parts didn't need to be. Pascal, yes. Yeah, so, so like, why, why are they still outside? Because this Saint feels Peter's. like a huge oversight. <laughs> because St. Peter's are outside of the Aurelian walls. So St. Peter's is the most sacred place. That's where all of the popes are. That's where the apostles are. Those ones, they didn't move. They just moved everything out of the, out of the catacombs and out of those outside, outside oversight man i feel like this is an oversight it's a massively historical oversight too because we don't know if at this moment the bodies of the two most important apostles saint peter and saint paul were just completely destroyed and this is still an issue there are there are sources at the time that write oh no the bodies were fine it was just the tombs that were desecrated and there has been other popes in history, especially even modern history, where they've made, like, verifications about the remains of St. Peter, and they're like, oh yeah, it absolutely is St. Peter. But because there is no definitive sourcing about what happened to the bodies at this time, we don't know. So the Saracens have just rolled in. They have taken three tons of gold, 30 tons of silver, potentially the bodies of St. Paul and St. Peter, and desecrated the whole of the church, and then they left. Then they just found off. All right. Yeah. Without breaching the walls or trying to sack the city, the Muslim raiders leave Rome. Well, they did leave a bunch of important stuff outside. Like, if I left a bunch of stuff, like all my money, out in the yard, why would they come in my home? It's true. And historian Tommy P. Lanquila explains why they do this. And he explains that this is an example of a specific Arab raiding tactic called the Gajwa. And the Gajwa is a carefully planned and rapidly executed attack where, quote, one quickly sweeps through enemy territory, seizing as much as possible before retiring to shelter. So what you're saying is if you left out all of your money, you're inviting a gazwa. I will not invite one of these. And in these cases, right, the Muslims could sweep through and pillage vulnerable, exorbitantly lucrative locations, but they also have simultaneously landed a massive psychological blow on their enemies, right? As historian Peter Partner puts it, no doubt they arranged the expedition with full consciousness of the moral shock it would give to Christendom and took care that the great Christian shrine should be desecrated as well as robbed. They know what they're doing. They know how much psychic damage is happening here. Let Rome know. Let them know it was me. Exactly. Exactly that. And certainly this was the case, because as the people in Rome looked on helplessly from behind the Aurelian walls as their most sacred apostolic sites were emptied and desecrated, they blame the papacy. 
Well, the papacy did leave it all outside, so... They did. They railed at Pope Sergius and, of course, his brother Benedict, because they had failed to provide adequate protection from the invaders and had not thought to prepare for such an occasion. And they're like, he's made so much money selling church offices and spent so much money building in the city, but not in providing fortifications for the most important sites. And not only that, he's already spent all of that money on making churches and beautifying things, so there's nothing to restore the two basilicas. So most of this spiritually wounding destruction is laid at the feet of Pope Sergius. And because of this, our next pope is going to have to undertake a significant restoration to fortify the city's defenses. Oh, I bet. I cannot imagine, like, not being like, well, that's an issue. Yeah, you have to learn this lesson or it will happen again. So this has all gone down. And while he's trying to figure out how to deal with this, an old debate rears its head. One that we've dealt with before, but is likely probably not significant enough to stick in your mind. So this was yet another dispute between the bishops of Aquileia and Grado. Oh, again? Again. Oh, so you do remember. Yay. I was just editing the one that went up and they were whining about it. Yeah. So this is the bishopric that was initially split due to the three-chapter schism, and ever since then, the bishops have fought over jurisdiction and authority, and they're at it again. This time, the details are unclear in any of the sources I could find. We don't know why this is reared up again, but the word scandal is used, so something is happening. So Sergius summons the Bishop of Aquileia to come to him in Rome so that they can make a resolution. He also apparently wrote to Emperor Lothair about convoking a synod to try and deal with this issue, so it might have been more than just a territorial dispute, or maybe he thought, hey, this has been going on a long time, I am massively in the hole with people and I need to solve a long-standing problem. But right in the middle of the negotiation, Pope Sergius suddenly and unexpectedly died. Although there doesn't seem to be a consensus on cause of death, considering how sick we already know he was, it was likely complications from his advanced gout. Yeah. He was buried in St. Peter's, and given his epitaph, this was likely in the altar to Saints Fabian and Sixtus, which also means that his tomb was destroyed for new St. Peter's. However, his epitaph survives. See the young Bishop Sergius who loved the people, who pastored his sheep well, is covered by this tomb. He was the hope of his homeland, ornament of the world, the very best governor, and he was not lazy when it came to divine teachings. He favored both night and day the Roman nobles who were deprived not only of good words, but of human goods as well, for like St. Leo and Pope Damasus, he maintained religious rites and taught the flock. He was always zealous to refresh the hungry crowd and willing that the people should attain the heavenly kingdom. Now let us beat our breasts with our fists for the loss of so great a shepherd. See in the body he is entwined with the pious Fabian and Sixtus. May he live in the heavens. This epitaph is like the lady doth protest too much. I just, I can't buy into any of it. Oh, he pastored his people well. He was very zealous in what he was doing. The man had gout, his brother did it all, they did a terrible job, and the basilicas were sacked. 
Yeah. Which is exactly the sort of tone we need to have when we go in and rate him. Oh, fun. <laughs> I know. Papatum and Phallium. Here there's a little something. He held his ground against the proposed oath of fealty to Emperor Lothair, vowing only allegiance and loyalty. This is neither positive or negative, but it's potentially because of him that we don't have any Pope Peters. He sets an important precedent, maybe, but that's that's all we can give him in this category. I'm leaning on like two-ish. Okay, I, I'm i going to give him just a one for holding his ground. That's really all I can give him. So if you give him a two, he'll get a three in Papatum and Valium. Fructus Prohibitum. This is going to be his round. <laughs> it's literally open and unabashed simony. He is selling offices of the church to the highest bidder. This is big. However, he does entrust the majority of his administration to his brother Benedict, who proved to be ambitious and avaricious and wild with spending and deeply, deeply disliked. So we have to consider, do we award him points for the actions of his brother, or do we award him points for leaving his brother in charge? And do we believe that Benedict is at fault for everything by himself? His brother probably was there doing his thing, but let's let's give him a good seven. I think it's got to be high. Yeah, I even though the Liber Pontificalis wants to blame his brother Benedict for everything, there's no way that this was happening without the Pope's say so, in my opinion. Right. And so it's it's big. They they did this together. And so I will credit him for everything. And I think a seven is good. So he'll get a 14 in Fructus Prohibitum. The biggest in a very long time. So long. An extremely long time. Oh my god, the last person who scored more points than him in this round is our beloved Pope Honorius, who was excommunicated as a heretic. We were so sad about it. Yep, the smirch, the smirchers. Seculari impactum. He is going to do so badly here. The Muslim attack on Rome. Even though the people of Rome, for the most part, are unharmed, which is good, the psychological damage of the pillaging and desecration of St. Peter's and St. Paul's is huge. And the people blame him for this. They blame him so much for this. Like, it is a zero. It's gotta be a zero from me. Yeah, I know. So the psychic damage alone makes it almost negative points at this point. I know. It is huge. It's so much psychic damage. Fossium Sanctus. All right. Well, this is going to be an interesting one. So first of all, let's look at the one we rate him on. <laughs> this is a grumpy, gouty, disheveled man. Come on and load. Oh, f- Jesus. <laughs> He looks dirty. <laughs> He's dirty and sleepy and tired. He's, mm, this gets a one for me. He is. Yeah, it's, it's bad, isn't dying. it? Dying. <laughs> Get that man to a doctor. <laughs> yeah, it's not good. The black, if your eyes are that blackened all the way around, you're not doing well. Mm-mm. Okay, so you'll give him a one. I think I'll match that because I don't like it at all. It makes me laugh, but... I almost swore at it, like... (laughs) You almost did, I heard it. 
So that gives him a 2, which when we divide out gives him a 0.5. I'm going to give you this, the bad artist image of him. That all makes him look better, but also makes him look like every other pope. It does, but look at the eyes. Look how much sag they've added to that eye bag. Like They have definitely added a ton. This is still a man who is dying, and the strap that is putting that hat on his head is also cutting into his, like, paunchy neck. Like, none of it is good. However... If we scored this round differently differently and didn't judge on the images in St. Paul's Outside the Walls, he would get some massive points from me. And I'll tell you why. Because there is a movie that incorporates Pope Sergius II, and he is played by John Goodman. Oh my god! Look at that. You know what? John Goodman has a very good happy man face. Even when he's frowning like this, you can see all his, like, laugh lines. You can, but he also, he's doing a great job of grumpy and gouty in this photo. He is doing an amazing job being grumpy and gouty, but if I had to rate John Goodman, I would rate it much higher. Oh, absolutely. This would would be scoring some serious points. I love John Goodman, and he's doing such a good job here. We're going to watch this movie, by the way, so I'm not going to say much more about it now, but we're going to watch it, so. Okay. We're going to get John Goodman as this pope. Tempus Pontificus. January 844 to January 27th, 847. Three years and a score of 0.75. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! Do, 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 do. I mean, no. No. The guy who is known for simony. So that brings us to his total score, which, all things considered, is not bad. He scored an 18.25, resting primarily on the laurels of his scandal points. But, and now here's a question that we may have a, a little bit of a debate about, because is he popey enough and pizzazzy enough with an impact enough for a papal bull? No, he don't up he did he did but open simony right the bodies of peter and paul potentially are destroyed under his reign is it enough to be like this is a bad man i want to tell you about no he he's just i'm mad at him he done up there are gonna be popes that will win this category for being bad but i don't know if he's quite bad enough so no we are not going to give it to him And that brings us to the end of our episode, so we have some thank yous to make. And first, we need to absolve some patrons of their temporal punishments. So we will say thank you to Dan Mokus and Brishan. Ego te absolvo. I also need to thank Tiffanites and Nahid John Spoon on Twitter, because they helped with the Arabic pronunciation of Gajwa. Which I was, it's, it's literally spelled G-H-A-Z-W. And I'm like, I don't have any experience with Arabic, so help. And people were incredibly helpful, so. Thanks, Twitter. Yeah, Twitter comes through for a lot of this stuff, so that's awesome. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at pontifexpod at gmail.com. And we're pontifexpod on all social media platforms. If you'd like to support the show, consider subscribing to Pontifax on Patreon. Checking out our research wishlist at tinyurl.com slash pontifaxwishlist. 
or making a one-time donation at paypal.me slash pontifaxpodcast. If you'd like to support us in other ways, rating and reviewing the show on iTunes makes a world of difference. And with that, we can say thank you and goodbye. Bye. Oh.